Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd ask that you would open them to Romans chapter 4. And as you're doing that, I just want to welcome you. Uh, add my welcome to, to, uh, to John Kirkpatrick's welcome. Uh, it is such an honor to be with you this morning, to gather with you, to sing songs about our Lord Jesus Christ, to, to open His Word, have it proclaimed, uh, to worship it, and, and not only what we say, what we hear, and then that, that it, it may actually do a work in our lives. It may actually transform us. It may actually change us. Um, maybe correct some uh, poor thinking, whatever that may be. And we pray that the Lord would do that in us this morning. Um, also, uh, as, as John mentioned today, we have our uh, churchwide picnic at Camp Helen. Um, Wendy and I were looking at this earlier this morning. Over 225 people have registered. Um, so much so that we're going to have to go get some more hamburgers and hot dogs. Okay? So I say all that to say, <clears throat> I will ensure that there are plenty of hamburgers and hot dogs. So if you've, if you've not registered, don't let that like keep you from coming today. Uh, you'll want to be a part of it. Last year, uh, I think we had about 150 or so. And so that just goes to show you. The Lord is doing a work here, um, and, uh, and we're so excited um, that we can gather together, fellowship with one another, enjoy one another's company, uh, especially after a day of being able to serve the Lord and to, uh, to hear His Word proclaimed. And so we're going to do that. Romans chapter 4. Um, we live in a world where hard work and dedication are typically rewarded, right? Rewarded either monetarily, uh, rewarded in, in a variety of ways. Um, as you know, uh, the week before last, our kids' ministry went to, to, to uh, Student Life for Kids camp at Chaco Springs. Amazing time. Uh, but I had the privilege of uh, leading the Bible study for all the boys every day. And so uh, they had a planned curriculum, and then also inside the curriculum were some memory verses. And so they were memorizing Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, verses 4 and 5, and 10. And, um, and, and so I, you know, I, the first day we were there, we got to go to the pool, and I saw somebody, a kid, holding one of those gourmet popsicles. You know what I'm talking about? The ones that are like 4 or $5 a piece. They're like really, really nice popsicles. Um, you know, not just the simple, you know, thing. We got a hundred of them in the refrigerator over here. Uh, you know, the ones that are in the plastic tube that you push out. You know, not those, okay? The ones that you can get a thousand for like $3, you know. Not those. These are the real, the real nice ones, okay? I saw some kids holding one, and so I thought, hey, I'm going to incentivize uh, our boys to memorize these, these, these verses. And so I told them, I told them, I said, hi, hey, here's the deal. If you will take some time, you will uh, memorize these verses, uh, and then you say it in front of everybody. We know when we have an all-church gathering, you say it in front of everybody. I will get you guys these popsicles. And, of course, they are like, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, at the beginning, everybody was like, oh, that's awesome. I had one or two that were like, I don't like popsicles. Uh, I was like, okay, I'm sorry. You still should, you know, put the work in and memorize this, this Bible verse. Well, 
you know, a couple days, uh, actually that, that same afternoon, we went and all the girls, we finally meet up with all the girls. And so I even incentivize, at this point I'm thinking, I would love to be able to buy popsicles for the whole kids group. Like, how, that'd be pretty awesome. And so I even tell the girls, I say, hey, look, if you guys will take time, memorize these verses, I'll get popsicles for everybody. Well, long story short, uh, you know, I kept encouraging the next two days. Uh, Clint Johns was in there with me. Trey Ramey was in there with me. Um, and I kept, hey, kept saying, hey, look, even if y'all can work together as a team, like I don't care. Uh, you can work together as a team. Y'all can help one another. Uh, but put the work in, memorize these verses, and I'll get you the popsicles. Um, well, what they didn't know was that I realized it was going to become a bit of a logistical problem. Because um, I didn't know when they would be able to say the verses. And I didn't know if we would... There was only one place at Shaco Springs that they, that they sold it. And it was only open for a small window of time. So I was kind of like in a panic. Of, I promised everybody that I, would, that I would get these popsicles. But, you know, I, I don't know if I'm going to actually be able to make it work. And so I ended up... I was a softie, right? I just said, hey, I would love to be able to get popsicles for everybody. You know, so I go to the front desk and I'm like, hey, I need these popsicles and I need them at 9 p.m. Uh, on our last night. Uh, can you help me get them? Well, so anyways, I had to jump the gun and I ended up buying popsicles for everybody before anybody says any verses. Well, on the last day, three or four of our boys, uh, you know, they were dedicated. They were going to make this happen. And uh, I have a microphone over here. They, they want to come up and say the, the verses. You don't want, y'all don't want to come up here? Some of them ran here. Yeah, I scared them. I kept saying, I'm going to get you to come up on stage and, and say the, uh, the memory verse. They won't do it. I'm not going to embarrass them. Um, but I in, they, they went to go practice it one time. The rest of the kids were, it was sort of a free time, and they've got some video games. Some kids were playing video games, and some were hanging out. There's a, a store there. And, uh, and so they left, though, three or four of them left to go to their room to, like, we're, we're going to memorize this verses. And so they go do the work. So I go find them. Clint is in there at the time. And uh, they were like, hey, can we go ahead and say it for you? I'm like, sure, go ahead. Well, so they, they say it. They go through it. And I said, hey, guys, I got to tell you something. Um, I'm a softie. I wanted to get popsicles for everybody. And so I wanted to say thank you for all the work you did, but everybody's getting popsicles. And some of them lost their mind. <laughs> they were like, they did not put in the work. They do not deserve these popsicles. And of course, Clint looks at me and he was like, there's a sermon in there. There's a sermon in there. I'm like, yeah, there is. And, and I, you know, I was talking, joking about this with my wife, and I was thinking to myself, I don't know if I was actually teaching the kids about the gospel or socialism. I'm not sure. Um, but regardless, everybody got these gourmet popsicles um, and, uh, and, and, and enjoyed them that, that evening, and, uh, and some of our boys put in some, some real hard work to memorize these verses. You know, receiving popsicles that they did not receive uh, is unmerited favor. Uh, this is a hard thing for us to understand, especially for the religious, you know. Um, this is hard for us to understand, and, and, and guess what? This is hard for Jews in the first century to also understand, right? Hard work 
produces some sort of reward, some sort of payment, some sort of merited favor. Um, And this is where we find ourselves this morning. Paul has been building a case for justification by grace through faith. Uh, He's just made this case, as we've looked at the end of chapter 3, he's made this case. uh, And and, and what we'll find in Ephesians chapter 4, he begins to defend that case by going to the scriptures. He's actually, I would argue, there's expositional preaching that, that Paul is doing in this moment where he's going to look at two particular Old Testament passages, Genesis 15, verse 6, and also Psalm 32, looking at two uh, really, you know, figures, prominent figures in the Old Testament. Abraham, who was the father of many nations, right? Abraham, he had many sons. Many sons had, yeah, there you go. And I am one of them, right? So there's also Abraham, and there's also David, who is the greatest king that Israel has ever had. And so let's just pick up in in Romans chapter 4, picking up in verse 1. We're going to read through the first eight verses this morning, and then we're going to spend some time in this passage. So Romans 1, or excuse me, Romans 4, verses 1 through 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has nothing to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift, are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray, Father, that you would minister to us now. Open our ears that we can hear. Open our eyes that we can see. Open our hearts that we can receive it, believe it. And be with us now. God, may you increase and may I decrease. We ask all that in Christ's name. Amen. In regards to all this talk about justification by faith, Jewish Christians in Rome uh, would have immediately begun to ask, How does the doctrine of justification by faith relate uh, to our history? And so Paul, he he says, uh, you say that this doctrine is witnessed by the law and the prophets. Well, what about Abraham? And he says, well, I'm glad you asked. And Paul sets out to show the gospel teaching about justification by faith is confirmed in the life and experience of Abraham. This is not a new doctrine that Paul is conjuring up, right? Uh, This is the way it's always been. He's making a case. This has always been this way. So he opens up in verse 2 by telling us, If our works have any place in justification, then salvation is not by grace, and we have a reason to boast. Pastor Chris talked about this last week. You know, even if God contributes 99%, we contribute 1%, we have something to boast about, right? The Bible won't let us do that. Paul won't let us do that. 
right? So um, we have nothing to boast about. So Abraham uh, could not boast before God. And Paul's making this case here. We cannot boast before God. Rather, in verse 3, Paul quotes Genesis 15, verse 6. He says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's showing us that Abraham was justified by faith. He believed God and his promise and it was imputed and it was imputed to him as righteous, as righteousness. He stood right before God by believing and not doing. And Paul wants us to focus on this important reality of Abraham's faith being uh, the instrument by which God declared him to be righteous. The teaching justification by faith is grounded in God's Old Testament scriptures. This should give us a greater confidence in understanding salvation by grace through faith. There's little application here. And, uh, and, and it should bring a little clarity to our understanding of salvation throughout redemptive history. Now, I thought about actually making this one of my points this morning. But I just thought, sort of a sidebar, I didn't want to chase this rabbit and make it bigger than it actually is. But there's something implied here that we shouldn't miss. And that is the Old Testament and the New Testament and present. Uh, and... and all of this is God has always saved his chosen people the same way through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Now, let me be clear. The people of the Old Testament didn't know everything about Jesus. In fact, they had a different idea of what that would actually look like. Uh, they didn't know exactly how God would do it, but they believed God would do it. Uh, and, and those who did were saved by grace through faith in a future work that would come. I love what Shy Lin, he's a Christian rapper, says in one of his songs. Um, he says, the beauty of the victory uh, truly is a mystery. The cross of Jesus Christ is at the nucleus of history. Before the cross, we were saved on credit. After the cross... We were saved on debit. Man, isn't that good? Beginning in verse 3, Paul introduces, though, this important term that he uses over and over again throughout this chapter. We have to understand this term because, again, it's going to show up in the sermon this morning. It's going to show up in the sermon next week. And that's this word, uh, logizomai, which means counted as. Counted as You'll see this, counted as righteousness. It was imputed to him. It was counted to him, credited to him. Uh, it's translated as counted, and he uses it in verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 9, 11, 22, 23, 24. Uh, so this is important. This is important for us to see. To credit something is to confer a status that was not there before. Um, one example I thought about in this my, pa my parents had, we're from a small town in South Alabama, and they had a house uh, that, you know, that I moved, we moved into when I was four. Uh, my parents moved out of there, you know, 20-something years later, almost 30 years later. Um, and, um, 
And it was really difficult for them to sell because they're from a small town. There's not a lot of industry that's bringing a lot of people in. And so my dad was working on this, uh, working with a real estate agent to potentially work on a lease to buy or a rent to own, you know. Uh, and so I, I, this is what I was thinking about. So if you're familiar with this, uh, you, you make payments that are rent in this, in this scenario. But if the decision is made to buy, then your past payments are counted as mortgage payments. A new status then is, uh, is, is granted to those payments, to those old payments. And so using this term, Paul zeroes in on this idea of imputation. I realize that imputation is not a word that we use very often, maybe over our coffee conversations. The word justification is also not one that, that comes up in regular conversation. You know, we have to go to Paul. We have to go to, to Romans or, or elsewhere before we're talking about justification in the course of conversation. But just as justification was a term borrowed from the law courts, right? This declaration of saying not guilty. This term of imputation was borrowed from the accountant's office. I know we have some accountants in, in the room, Ms. Shauna right there. See, you know what this is like, right? Uh, Paul goes to these two terms uh, not only to describe for us what it was like to be saved, uh, but to show us what God does when he actually does save us. The issue of justification, the issue of imputation, is not just an interesting term for you know, inter interesting theological jargon for seminarians and those who are called into ministry and teaching in seminaries and whatnot. The issue of justification, the issue of imputation, is at the heart of the Christian faith. And so it's important for all of us to understand. There are very few questions in life that you can ask more significant than the question, what makes a person right with God? What is, what, is it, what is it that causes God to accept a person, to embrace a person? What can cause you to be able to stand with confidence before the judgment of God? And Paul is addressing precisely that in this passage before us. He quoted Genesis 15, 6, and he had raised this picture, this term, this metaphor of reckoning or accounting or imputing by, uh, by reminding us that Abraham believed and it was reckoned, it was counted to him, it was imputed to him as righteousness. And this is where I want to get my first point this morning. As we trust in Christ, God credits to our account the righteousness of Christ and conversely credits our sin to Christ's account. This makes me think about, which by the way, I, I, I've already talked about this with, the, uh, with Joey, who's running slides back there. I'm about to leave this slide, so I'm come, I asked him to come back to it right after we look at this next, um, this next slide. Uh, Heidelberg Catechism. We say it quite often here, so I thought it would be just appropriate for us to look at what the Heidelberg Catechism says. How are you righteous before God? Question 60 of the Heidelberg Catechism, written in 1563. Okay, how are you righteous before God? The answer, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commands, 
of never having kept them, any of them, and, and, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit on my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned, nor been a sinner, and as and if I had been as perfect, perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. And all I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. And you can go back to the previous point for those taking notes. If you are in Christ, then God looks at us as if uh, we were as faithful as Christ. Despite the reality of knowing us, knowing full well that we have been massively unfaithful. This is an unbelievable demonstration of grace and mercy. In verses 4 and 5, he explains imputation as we trust in Christ. God, by his favor, credits Christ's righteousness to us. That's what imputation means. As we trust in Christ, God credits to our account the righteousness of Christ and conversely credits our sin to Christ's account. That's what imputation means. And Paul here is explaining how imputation works. He makes it clear in verses 4 and 5 that Abraham was declared righteous and he was accepted by grace as a favor, as a grant, as a gift from God according to his faith, not according to his works. But understanding imputation, Paul says, will help you understand and appreciate all the more that Abraham was accepted by grace. The argument here is that God's imputation of righteousness is in, inconsistent with your earning your standing as being righteous. In other words, imputation is uh, in, incomparable with an earned salvation. Merit and what is due because of what you have done, those things don't mesh with being reckoned righteous by grace, being imputed righteousness by God's favor. Paul gives this negative illustration in verse, verse 4. He, he says, look, a laborer receives earned wages. It is a laborer's legal and moral right to receive those wages. And to put it another way, it is the employer's legal and moral responsibility and obligation to pay him his due for what he has done. You want to get in trouble with labor laws? Put somebody to work and don't give them money for it. <laughs> they can take you to court. They can sue you. You can actually be put in prison for this. Okay? And Paul says, this is not how it is in God's justification. Now, it's very important for us to, to pause here and reflect because so often when we talk with people about salvation. The first way that they want to think about their relationship with God is in terms of compensation. I'm trying to live a good life. Uh, how often do you hear that? Um, what's your relationship with God? Well, I'm, I'm trying to live a good life. 
the category of compensation immediately comes up. And the Apostle Paul is saying here that, that this is not the way it is in justification. To reckon or to credit or to impute righteousness, that is what God does in justification. He, he doesn't look at you and say, okay, you're righteous. I, I'm going to declare you righteous. He grants to us, by His grace, that we are credited as, accepted as, accounted as righteousness, or righteous for the sake of His Son by faith. So, he goes to this metaphor of accountancy. Paul says, God imputes righteousness. He assigns that to your account. It's moved from one column to another, from one ledger sheet to another. And so, in contrast to the Jews who argued that God justified Abraham, that he had chosen Abraham because of his righteousness, Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. If you look at the Old Testament, it's clear that God imputed righteousness. He credited Abraham with the righteousness because of his faith. And so Paul explains imputation by saying that God, through his sheer favor and gift, and granted, he granted, declared Abraham righteous according to his faith alone, apart from his works. What's so significant about this? Paul is saying, we are thinking in terms of earned salvation, then we are thinking in the wrong categories. For Paul, salvation is by grace, not by compensation. And because salvation is by grace and not by compensation, we thus receive it by faith rather than by our works. And this is where I want to get point number two from. Salvation is by grace, not by compensation. We receive it by faith. We don't earn it by works. Paul is explaining imputation to us so that we will understand precisely this truth. There's a temptation in every, every person with any sort of religious inkling who is unclear about what Jesus has declared in his word. And what his apostles teach in his word. There is an inkling. There is an instinct. There is a tendency. in every person to seek acceptance by God via what we do. I mean, it's ingrained in our culture. It's ingrained into who we are, right? We work, we earn. We work, we earn. This is the way it works in everything else in life. Except for this one thing. <laughs> right? I'm trying... You know, you'll hear people say, I'm trying to be a good person. I try to keep the Ten Commandments. I try uh, and be charitable with other people. Perhaps you've heard someone say. And the Apostle Paul says, you need to understand that when it comes to acceptance by God, this is a matter of grace and faith, not compensation and works. Paul goes on to elaborate that precise point in verses 6 through 8. He explains imputation in verses 4 and 5. 
God credits righteousness to our account. And he demonstrates it through the Old Testament in verses 6 through 8. Paul turns our attention to Psalm 32 at this point. Verses 1 and 2. And he says, David himself in, in that passage, speaking of our lawless deeds being forgiven, covered and not imputed not, and not, not reckoned to us. In other words, why does Paul turn to uh, turn, turn in, in Romans 4, 6 through 8 to Psalm 32? He turns there so that we will know that David understood justification by faith. That David believed justification by faith. That David taught justification by faith. Paul is saying that not only did Abraham understand, believe, and embrace justification by faith, but so also David understood, believed, and taught justification by faith alone. And it is received through faith alone. Not by works. Paul, in order to confirm his teaching, goes back to the Old Testament again. He was in 15.6, Genesis. Now he's in Psalm 32. Now, not only does he go to the Psalms, he goes to David himself. This towering figure in the Old Testament. Every faithful Jew would have known who he was. What better way to appeal to Jewish Christians and an audience that he was asking them to turn back to the Old Testament Scriptures. He was saying, no, listen up. You embrace what the Scriptures say. Those Scriptures have, for you, have set forth for you a salvation, the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. For the people of the Old Testament, it was promised, it was this promised redemptive history to be fulfilled in Jesus. The New Testament era and beyond, where we are now, has we, we get to see what Jesus has already done. And he and he goes right to Psalm 32. And he's saying, Look, what is true about Abraham is also true about David. He too knew that justification is by faith alone. And he says, David recognized the forgiven man, the accepted man, the man whom his own sins had not been reckoned to him. That's the blessed man. Now, that's very significant. David doesn't call him a deserving man. Deserving is the man. He doesn't use that language. What does he say? Blessed is the man. Look at the end of verse 8. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul goes to the passage because of it, because it's, he uses this phrase, take into account. It's the same term. It's used in Genesis 15, 6. Just as God says in his word in 15, 6, that he reckoned Abraham as righteous. Right? He counted him as righteous. David says that the man who is blessed is not reckoned, uh, is not reckoned his sin. He's not accounted for his sin. God does not reckon his sin. He does not take his sin into account. And the passage here, you see, focuses us on what we might call this sort of non-imputation, right? Not being credited to us. In other words, David is rejoicing that uh, his sin was not imputed, not counted to him. 
not reckon to his account. This is where I want to get verse uh, the, the third main point for us this morning. If we are in Christ, God does not impute our sins to us. He does not charge them to our account. Now, I'm going to explain that. This is absolutely important for us to understand. Whereas our tendency, when we begin to talk about spiritual things, if we don't have a saving relationship with Jesus, our tendency is to say, well, you know, I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to keep the Ten Commandments. And I'm trying to be a charitable person. I'm, I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to, to do good deeds and, and live mercifully with, with other people. Notice that Paul says, blessed is the man whom the Lord does not consider his works. The blessed man is the man that God accepts, not on the basis of what he, uh, on what he is, not what he does, but by something else. In other words, far from standing before God and saying, Lord, I'm trying to be a good person, David says, the man who is really blessed is the man whom God doesn't consider any of those things. He considers something else about him. That he has trusted, he has placed his faith, he has believed on God and his promises as revealed in Jesus Christ. And as such, he's considered to be the righteous man. This non-imputation, you could call it I guess, is it points us to three great imputations in scripture. We're going to see this uh, over the next coming weeks as we get to Romans chapter 5. There's a sad imputation, and then there are two what I would call happy imputations, right? And, you know, we, if you look at uh, Romans 5, verse 12, we learn about um, Adam's sin in the garden is imputed to us, like as if we were there. Adam was our representative, but we are held responsible for Adam's sin. We, me, you, you, all of you, me, as if we were there in the garden. Adam is our federal head. His sin, what he did in the garden, he and, he and his wife Eve, what they did in the garden, is as if, it's as if you were there and you rejected God. This is one of the most unpopular teachings in the Bible, right? Why am I guilty for what someone else did, right? I wasn't there. Why do I have to be guilty of what he did? But it is this inescapably biblical and Pauline that all of us have sinned in Adam. That we bear the responsibility for the fall of Adam. However, there are two more imputations. The, what I would call the happy imputations, right? Um, and Paul begins to speak of them in Romans 5 as well. Even as uh, he is speaking of them now. That is the imputation of Christ's of the righteousness of Christ to us, to those who believe in him, and the imputation of our sins onto Jesus, right? There's a great exchange, right? My sin on Jesus, Jesus' righteousness on me. David doesn't tell you in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, how, how, how it is that God could be righteous and not impute your sins to you. Paul does tell you how it is that God could be righteous and not impute your sins to you. 
He said it happens this way. Jesus dies for you. As your sins are imputed to him, his righteousness, conversely, is imputed to you as you trust in him. So that you are declared to be righteous in him. And he is declared to be a sinner for you. And he receives his own body. Uh, he, 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 he puts his own body on the tree to die a penalty that you deserve to die. Sin for, for, for your sins. He takes them on. He, he who knew no sin becomes sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God. So that as you trust in him, you go free. Now, the Apostle Paul is saying, that's what I'm telling you, friends. He's telling the, these Jewish people there, this is what I'm telling you. And he's telling all of this, uh, he's telling us this as well. Far from trusting in our own works to gain us God's faith, we should rejoice that by faith he doesn't count our works against us. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody? Maybe you sinned against them, maybe you said something that you shouldn't have, or maybe someone's wronged you, they've done something to you, um, and you've asked for forgiveness, or they've asked for forgiveness, um, and you receive it, say, hey, I forgive you, but months later, maybe years later, that thing they forgave you, or you forgave them about, you kind of throw it back out there like a hand grenade, you know, maybe in aggressive way or maybe in a passive-aggressive way, um, where you, this is what it's like, again, to, uh, to, to hold someone's transgressions against them. Um, or better yet, do you constantly find yourself guilt-ridden over your sins, doubting God's love for you because you continually struggle with guilt and shame and sin. Maybe you just can't find freedom from the sin that you have. And so you're just like, how, how would God love somebody like me? Right? You, you begin to look towards yourself. You begin to, what we would call navel gaze, right? You look at your feet, you know. You're, you're looking down and all you see is yourself. You just can't believe that God wouldn't hold your sins over our head. And this is just the opposite of what God does if we are in Christ. Just the opposite. Late pastor um, Tim Keller commenting on this, this verse um, says this. Knowing the blessing of credited righteousness is the only way to be liberated to view yourself truly. Without it, we will either ignore the truth that God is righteous and that we will only accept a righteous life and that he will only accept a righteous life or we will be crushed by the truth. We will ignore, excuse, or despair at our transgressions. But if we have saving faith, we can be real about ourselves, about our flaws, about our failings. And we can pick ourselves up when we do fail. Because we know the blessing of being sinners whose sins are not counted against us. Sinners who are righteous. Listen to me. 
when I say this. Understanding, believing, resting in this doctrine of imputation, justification by faith alone, being granted a new status. You went from a renter to an owner. Resting in this great doctrine will be one of the most freeing, life-giving realities that you will ever experience. It's the only way to take our eyes off ourself, our own self-salvation projects, our own trying to earn it, white-knuckle this thing, trying to earn our salvation of favor from God. The only way to do that is to take our eyes off ourselves and look to Jesus and recognize that we have a new status. In closing, let me just say that there may be someone here today who has grown up in the church. And maybe you're a member of the covenant member of this church, and you have been your whole life. And yet, ultimately, you think that the person, the reason uh, you ought to be accepted by God is because you are a nice person. After all, you're a Christian. You were born in Alabama. You haven't murdered anybody that we know of. You haven't done anything really terrible, at least in your eyes. Sure, God should accept me. I've, I've been pretty good. The apostle says here, for anyone who is trusting in himself that way, because that's exactly what you're doing. You're not trusting in Christ. You're, not, you're trusting in yourself. You're not the blessed man, as Paul points to David. The blessed man is the man who is uh, long past thinking that he can command uh, him, that he can commend himself to God because of what he has done. The blessed man is the man whom God looks over the things that he has done and looks to something deeper and greater, what Christ has done. Or perhaps you're a person who thinks, you know, this, this Christian God, this, this God of the Bible, this God, this God is he's mean. Honestly, he, he's, he's waiting to pounce on me. He's waiting to, to blast me into oblivion. Um, you know, how can you ask me, Pastor, to, to love a God like that? And the Apostle Paul is saying here, let me tell you about my God. So willing, so ready was he to embrace you, to declare you to be righteous through though you are not. <laughs> that he caused your sin to be imputed to his son. That he might embrace you as a son, as a daughter, a beloved son and daughter. You get, it? you get this, right? Once enemies of God, now beloved sons and daughters, were, he literally brings us in off the street and puts us at the table and we are dining with him and he's now, given to us all the inheritance that is Christ's inheritance, he's given to us. This is the kind of God that's set forth in the gospel. There's no God like him in all the world. All the other gods in the world are fabrication of men's minds. This God is far beyond. Can you imagine Adam in the garden saying, you know, Lord, 
why don't you send your son to redeem us? How outlandish does that sound? But God does just that. He gives us his son. And then you, Christian, who, who may, as you know, you've been going on in this Christian life, have begun to think in terms of God's favor towards you, that God's acceptance towards you is based on somehow upon you being good enough that particular day. Don't you need to be reminded that if your acceptance is based upon anything in you ever, you'll never know the freedom which God has granted by the Spirit. Because you know, if you think about it long enough, that there's nothing in us that we have not corrupted by sin. And that the way of peace of mind and assurance of salvation is the recognition, uh, the recognition that our acceptance of, of, of God by God is not based upon an innate righteousness in us, but on an alien righteousness that has been credited to our accounts, brought from Jesus' ledger sheet to our ledger sheet, imputed to us by divine grace, Christ's righteousness, which is my own faith, so that I have peace with God. Listen, that's a gospel worth sharing. And a great faith to live by. Let's pray.